So let's generate our motivation. So the last few classes we've been talking about root afflictions and auxiliary afflictions. And the auxiliary afflictions from both the viewpoint of the Sanskrit tradition and the Pali tradition. And these explanations are giving us a map to use to understand how our own mind works. So they're not just lists. So as we try and understand each of these mental factors and find it in our own experience, we begin to understand how our confusion and our suffering in life come about because afflictions are definitely out of touch with reality and the source of many moods and mental feelings that are unpleasant and they're also the motivations for us to do actions that then perpetuate our our dukkha our unsatisfactory conditions. So it's important as we see this that we respond to it not with depression and discouragement, but with a very, very strong determination to free ourselves from these afflictions and to cease the dukkha that they cause. So when we do this, let's do it not just for ourselves, but with a mind that cherishes other living beings. Let's seek our own liberation, our own full awakening, so that we can lead others on the path to their liberation and full awakening as well. So generate this motivation for what we're doing now. I think after a week of teaching, my voice is going on strike. (laughs) So, uh, last time, we left off on page 96 with a reflection. And we had just finished the list of 16 
auxiliary afflictions according to the Pali tradition. So the reflection, okay, first point, some people have difficulty identifying emotions because when they were children, their parents did not name emotions or discuss them very much. So some people learn as children their emotions, they felt them, they talked about them in the family. Other people, you know, the family just didn't talk about it, and the parents didn't, you know, name the emotions that either they were feeling or the children were feeling. So, like when a, uh, a kid was unhappy and like having a temper tantrum, the parents didn't say something like, uh, you're really angry, aren't you? You know, they may have said, uh, stop it, calm down. But the child, you know, okay, I'm supposed to stop crying and calm down. But the child didn't learn the name of what they were feeling, that that's what anger is. Yeah, And so then when they grow up, you know, and people might say, oh, you sound angry. They don't know what they're talking about. Okay? So, you know, same with arrogance or jealousy or attachment. So it depends a lot on the family that that you grew up in, uh, whether you know how to name what you're feeling. Yeah? It's, It's a thing that, you know... Uh, we learn as kids. So I have a, uh, a friend who teaches NVC in the public schools. And one thing that she really tries to do uh, in that is teach kids how to name what they're feeling. Yeah. And how to figure out what they're needing. And it's interesting because uh, we studied NVC here at the Abbey. Many of us can label what we're feeling, but when we're asked, what are we needing, we draw a blank. Has that been your experience with NVC? Yeah, it's like, okay, I'm mad, I'm upset, I'm depressed. What do I need? I have no idea. But whatever it is, I'm crying and having a fit because I don't have it. But I can't verbalize what it is I'm needing because we never learned to you know the words for that we never learned to to identify that that in ourselves so this is something that I think is very helpful to us as dharma practitioners to be able to learn to to identify what we're needing yeah not just what we're feeling but what we think we're needing, and then we can start questioning, do I really need that? Yeah, because we just assume, uh, you know, once we learn how to name it, oh, yes, I must have that. But then, you know, part of our Dharma practice is to question, you know, do I need that? Or even, do I need that from somebody else? Or can I meet my own need myself? Like you might say, well, I need companionship. Yeah, okay, yeah, we need companionship. 
You know, is companionship something, you know, what, what below that is, is the need? Is it just to have somebody to hang out with? Or is it more, you know, I need comfort? Yeah, when we say I want a companion, what is it we need? Well, if I want comfort, well, what kind of comfort? And do I really need that kind of comfort? Or how can I meet my own needs for comfort? You know, instead of running around looking for a companion who's going to comfort me, how can I give comfort to myself? Okay. So, uh, yeah, so the first step in all of this is learning to name things. And then we can start to see how they fit together and, and begin to ask ourselves questions. Yeah. As we might say, you know, we might figure out, oh, I'm anxious. Yeah. Why am I anxious? I need security. Yeah. It might take you a, a while to, you know, identify what do I, what am I anxious about? Well, I need predictability and security. Then you have to ask, are predictability and security things that are findable in samsara? Yeah? Will I ever find total predictability such that I always feel secure about what tomorrow will bring? No? Okay. So then fear comes. Oh, I need, you know. Well, okay, how can I calm my own mind? Instead of seeing the lack of predictability and security as a threat to my own happiness, is there a way for me to see it as an adventure or as something to play with? or as something to learn from. Yeah? So how, how else can I relate to the insecure nature of samsara? Okay. So all these kinds of questions, you know, come up, and they give us a lot to really think about. And as we begin to process them and uh, learn to differentiate, you know, when we're grasping at security, I want security, I want predictability, I want security. Okay, is is that affliction that's grasping, or is that a realistic mind? Yeah, it's affliction, isn't it? Yeah. Oh, affliction. Hmm. No wonder I feel so miserable. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, so how can I calm this affliction down? Yeah, how can I release it? Because what it's wanting is impossible to get. Yeah, like my friend I told you about who wanted true satisfaction from getting a Porsche. Yeah, you're never going to get true satisfaction from getting getting a Porsche. So you might as well just kind of give it up. 
<laughs> yeah. Now we look at that and say, well, of course, yeah, you just give up having a Porsche. It's no big deal. That's because we don't want Porsches. But if somebody said, you know, give up your craving for, for security, no, I can't do that. I need that. I'm going to freak out if I don't have it. Okay. It's so interesting, isn't it? When it's our need, it's like so concrete and impossible to give up, you know, because it's real and it's based on reality. But somebody else's affliction and craving, we can easily see, well, that's really dumb. You know, how in the world is a Porsche going to give you happiness? Come on. Okay. But our, what we want for, for security, what security means to us, you know, I need a piece of paper. I need a diamond ring. I need, you know, whatever it is that I feel is going to give me security. Is that really going to give me security? Yeah. And so somebody else can look at it and say, that's really a dumb thing to crave. That's not going to do it for you. But we say, yes, it will. Yes, it will, really. (laughs) Okay. Okay, so that's the first point in the the reflection. The second point is some ways to learn to identify your emotions are to become aware of, A, sensations in your body. Okay, so this, uh, you know, brings up the practice of... um, Where am I? I... I want to call it vigilance. It's not vigilance. It's, um, yeah, say it again. Introspective. Introspective awareness. Thank you. Okay, I have a senior moment from time to time. Okay, so, you know, how, how do I identify sensations in my body? Introspective awareness. I monitor my body. And then I learn, you know, oh, when I have certain... Uh, physical sensations, this links up with different afflictions or even different positive uh, mental factors in my mind. Okay. And, and that's one thing. When you meditate on the breath, you really learn from, from watching your breath. Okay. When you, your breathing is fast, what's going on in your mind? Yeah, anxiety. What? What? Fear. Excitement. Is that what you said? Huh? What kind of excitement? (laughs) Okay. Well, I think this. You know. (laughs) Okay. Um, so then if you notice, you know, your breathing is very fast and it's, you know, going towards that kind of emotion, then you can sometimes try, slow your breathing down and see if that affects your emotion. Yeah. 
there's something very interesting. If you are counseling someone, yeah, if you can match your breath to their breath, you know, it establishes a rapport and it also enables you to kind of help the person calm down. Yeah? Somebody's breathing really fast, you start out like that, and then you slow it down a bit, and the other person can, can often follow like that. It's very interesting how that works. Okay? Um, if, if you notice that your stomach's getting tight, yeah, What's, what are you likely feeling? Anxiety, fear, anger. Yeah. Okay. So, yeah, learning to be aware of what sensations are in the body can can be very good to help us identify what's going on in our mind. Yeah. Because, again, lots of times it's like we just don't know how to check in with ourselves. And see see what what's we're thinking and feeling. Okay, so sensations in your body. Uh, another thing to help you identify emotions: to watch the flow or the texture of your breath. That's what I was just talking about. Your breath is fast. If your breath is rush is not rushed, rough. The texture of your breath is rough, or if your breathing is very smooth. That will also give you information about what you're feeling. And then to watch the tone or the mood in your mind. Yeah, what's the tone of my mind? And then you realize, well, I don't feel so peaceful. And then you notice, oh, my thoughts are being very critical of other people right now. You, you weren't aware of how critical you were being. But then you, you feel like, uh, you don't feel completely relaxed in your mind, and then you start looking for why. And it's like, oh, I'm sitting there in my mind, saying, oh, okay, well, no wonder. And then you have to, like, cut, the, cut those thoughts. Okay. Yeah, I can often feel like I just, something inside just doesn't feel comfortable. Yeah. And then for me, it's, it's a sign I have to stop and, you know, did I say or do something that I don't feel good about? Because right now there, there's a feeling tone in my mind that is just not comfortable. Mm-hmm. So it's it's a process of, you know, this is why we do the four establishments of mindfulness, yeah, is to really watch and observe and learn how the mind operates, how the body operates, how the two are linked. And then seeing that they're both impermanent, they're both in the nature of dukkha, and neither one of them are the self the eye. Okay, then the third point, 
Using the above techniques, try to identify instances of each of the auxiliary afflictions in your life. Okay, so this point's going to take some time. Okay, because you got to like learn what those auxiliary uh, afflictions are, and then be, you know, learn to see them when they're coming up. Yeah, when when sometimes you're just sitting there very peacefully. And then you notice there's the thought, I am. I am. Yeah? The conceit of I am. There's just, you know, this feeling. You're not necessarily talking to yourself, but just this feeling. There's an I here. I am. Or, you, you know, you notice all sorts of other things. Yeah, maybe different wrong views that we have that we think are right views or views that we learned as kids that we've never questioned that now come up and throw us for a loop when we're trying to understand the Dharma. And, oh, huh, yeah, I was raised with the concept of a creator God who managed the universe. And right now, my stomach's tense because I'm afraid God's going to send me to hell. And you may have just had a, a tight stomach and, you know, just not notice the thought behind it. Yeah? Until you stop and, and kind of Look, and I'll say, oh, well, you know, I just did something, and I'm not really evaluating whether what I did is virtuous or non-virtuous. I'm just assuming it's bad, so I'm assuming that I'm going to get punished by it or punished for it. And I was taught when I was a little kid I was going to hell, you know, or whatever we were taught, okay? So to begin to notice these kinds of things and then figure them out. Or maybe, you know, we're not afraid of God. It's like, oh, I did did something and it doesn't feel good inside, you know? And it's like, well, I'm afraid of mom or dad, (laughs) you know? That got imprinted in us a lot. You know, when you do this, when you say that, you are a bad boy, you are a bad girl, and we don't love you because you're bad. And then we realize, oh, that's what I'm telling myself this whole time, that I'm bad. Where did I learn that? Well, I was taught that as a kid. Now I don't need anybody to tell me I'm a bad person. I just recite it to myself. (laughs) And then you have to start questioning, you know, why am I a bad person? Yeah. I said something that was kind of flippant. It doesn't mean I'm a bad person. Yeah. If I don't like what I said, I go and apologize. Forget, Forget it. Drop it. Okay, so you try and identify all the the different auxiliary afflictions when they're in your mind. 
Point four, examine the triggers that make the auxiliary afflictions arise. Examine the short and long-term results of manifest auxiliary afflictions in your life. So when you notice that maybe there's jealousy in your mind, well, what triggered it? What kinds of people do you tend to get jealous about? And what kind of issues do you get jealous about? Because everybody's quite different, you know, about that. Yeah. And, you know, some people say, I get jealous of people who are, uh, you know, really rich. And somebody else says, I don't get jealous of those. I get jealous of people who are good athletes. (laughs) You know, whatever it is. And then... uh, Okay, so I get jealous like that. That Seeing that person is my trigger. Sometimes they don't even have to say or do anything. I just see them and instantly my mind goes, okay. And then what are the results when those manifest afflictions arise in my mind? Okay, what happens when I get jealous? How do I act? What's the expression on my face? How do I talk? What's the long-term effect of my speech and my actions when I get jealous? Okay, So really observing these kinds of things. And then making sure that all of this observation, you know, that we then use at the conclusion is, I want to practice and overcome these afflictions and get out of samsara. Don't make the conclusion, oh, I'm seeing the all these afflictions. I have so many afflictions. I am terrible. I'm never able to overcome all of these. This is a mess. You know, I'm a failure at Dharma practice. Same old, same old. Yeah. So instead of doing that, you know, make sure you're meditating on the Dharma and you're not meditating on some old habit of putting yourself down. Okay. If you use meditation to come up with the wrong conclusion, something's wrong with the way you're meditating. Yeah. You should come up with the conclusion of, oh, I find those afflictions. They're not part of me. Yeah. I can eliminate them. I really want to eliminate them. Yeah. What can I do to gradually weaken these so that I can get out of samsara? Okay. So you have to make sure you come to the proper conclusion. Otherwise, you know, I mean, if if you come out of a meditation session feeling lousy and discouraged, Discouraged and disgruntled and depressed. Yeah, for sure you are not meditating correctly. Okay? So if you come out of a session feeling like that, somehow your mind has gone astray. Because you ask yourself, does the Buddha need to teach me how to be depressed and disgruntled and feel inferior? Buddha doesn't need to teach me how to do that. Yeah, I do it all by myself. 
Is feeling disgruntled and depressed and discouraged useful on the path? No. So it's an affliction. Are afflictions reliable mental states that we should believe? No. Okay. And so then you... You check, you know, look, what I'm telling myself is completely hogwash. So drop it. Okay? Because, I mean, really think about it. Do you think the Buddha wants to make you feel like you're a bad person? Come on, give the Buddha some credit. So, Yeah. So if we come out feeling like that, then we've, we've missed something and we need to go back and really study the meditation and what's the conclusion we're supposed to come to. Okay, I'll give you an example. One of my friends, I was talking with her many years ago, and uh, you know this whole thing about cherish other living beings more than you cherish yourself. You know, in the bodhicitta meditations, the the disadvantages of cherishing others, of cherishing self, the benefits of cherishing others. And so she was feeling really down after doing that meditation. And she went to ask one of the Tibetan lamas about it. And she was asking the question through a translator. So Tibetans don't have this thing of putting themselves down like in the West, people do. So when she asked the question, the answer, she, she said, you know, I'm doing this meditation and then I'm just feeling like I'm a bad person for being selfish. Is that really what I'm supposed to come to from doing this meditation? And the Lama said, yes. You know, because I don't know if it was the Lama not understanding or the translator not understanding. So she was telling me that, you know, the answer came back, yes, and it just made her more and more upset. Yeah. And then we had a long talk about, no, you know, this. I'm sure if the Lama had really understood what you were asking, he would have responded differently, you know, because this is not how you want to come out of that meditation. But very often, you know, our mind follows old patterns and we come out with the wrong conclusion. Okay. Then point five, develop a strong determination to counteract the auxiliary afflictions by cultivating mental states that see the object in the opposite way. So that's the conclusion you're supposed to come to from doing the meditation. Okay, and then you have to think, well, you know, what's the the antidote to when I feel jealous? What's the antidote to see the object in in uh, the opposite way? Well, jealousy, I want to deprive them of what they have because I think I should have it. So the antidote, rejoice in what they have. Oh, I don't want to. (laughs) I don't want to rejoice. 
you know, because it's not fair and they deceived me and now they got it and I'm cheated out of whatever it is that I wanted. And you see your mind just go bonkers sometimes. And then you have to come back and say, let's try, okay. You know, you talk to your mind like you talk to a child, okay? I know you're upset, you're really jealous, yeah, you don't really feel like thinking something good about that person. But let's try, because if you can think good, something good about them, you'll feel better too. So let's try. What good thing can you think about that? Yeah. And and really, you have to work with your mind like you are talking to a child. Because we, we are called childish beings for a reason. Yeah. I mean, in, in the scriptures, they call people like us childish beings. Why? I'm an adult. Why are you calling me childish? Well, my mind is pretty childish sometimes. You know, I have my own little temper tantrums. Stab my feet and cry. <laughs> yeah. Of course, now we, we're adults, so we don't do it quite like that. Okay. Because that would look childish. So we throw our temper tantrum in a more dignified adult way. Yeah. I'm mad at you because you did this and this and this. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, that's okay. Okay, so good reflection to do. Okay, the next section is about fetters. Okay, so we've been through root afflictions. We've been through two lists of auxiliary afflictions. You know, we've been through, what else? We talked about the underlying, uh, the uh, underlying, what did we call them? Huh? And uh, Yeah, the underlying tendencies. Yeah. So there's lots of different categories. So now the, the fetters. So the fetters really come to be talked about a lot um, in when we talk about the uh, the path of the Shravakas and the solitary realizers, okay? Uh, because this is how those beings go through the four stages, and each stage has two pa- two parts to it, okay? So, the approacher and then the fruit of uh, stream mentor, the approacher and the fruit of one once returner, the approacher and the fruit of non-returner, the approacher and the fruit of an arhat. Okay? So the fetters are really important there for going between one stage and the next. Yeah, for the shravakas and solitary realizers. And interestingly enough, uh, Chandrakirti brings them up when he, uh, you know, in the supplement, when he talks about, what was he talking about? I can't remember. It was about when somebody, the, I'll look it up. Okay, we'll come to it. My excuse is I'm tired. 
Does that sound like an okay excuse? Yeah, yeah. Oh, well, so you're not going to think bad of me? Oh, good. Protect my reputation. (laughs) Okay, so the ten fetters are spoken about extensively in the Pali tradition and in the treasury of knowledge by Vasubandhu. Okay, so they are called fetters because they keep us bound to cyclic existence and impede the attainment of liberation. So the first five are lower fetters because they bind us to rebirth in the desire realm. And the last five are higher fetters that prevent a non-returner from becoming an arhat. Okay, so let's look at the... the, um, the lower fetters first. So the first one is view of a personal identity. So this, and this is how, all these now, this is how uh, the Pali tradition and the treasury of knowledge talk about these. Yeah, prasangikas uh, sometimes have a different view. Okay, so view of a personal identity grasps a true self with respect to the aggregates. For example, thinking one of the aggregates is the self, or the self is separate from the aggregates, or the self is vast and the aggregates exist within it, or the self exists within the aggregates. Where did we hear these before? Hmm? Yeah, they're in Chandra Turchi's sevenfold analysis. And they're also, when we talked about view of personal identity under um, the Pali tradition, well, this is it, yeah, okay. And they, they were the wrong views of the self that we have to see. But yeah, these are very much within Chandrakirti. Okay, so that's one of the lower fetters. And what's interesting is in the Pali tradition, and I think the treasury of knowledge as well, this is eliminated at uh, when you become a stream enter. And becoming a stream enter is equivalent to path of seeing. For the prasangikas, this is not eliminated until you become an, ar- uh, an arhat. Okay, so you can see there's some difference. And also remember, the, for the prasangika, this, this one, the view of the personal identity is uh, grasp a true self with respect to the aggregates. For the prasangika, it grasps a true self with respect to the conventional self. Okay, so there's some differences here. Okay, the second one, diluted doubt. Okay, so this is, we've talked about this before, it's a vacillating mind that equivocates about issues important for liberation. Okay, Uh, such as doubting that the Buddha is awakened, that the Dharma is the ultimate truth and the path out of samsara, and that the Arya Sangha has realized the Dharma. So if you have those kind of doubts, they really impede you from practicing because you're not sure, you know, is this path 
doesn't work, you know, or is it just a bunch of made-up mumbo-jumbo? Yeah. So it's an affliction, it interferes. Yeah. The third one is view of rules and practices, and it clings to mistaken codes of ethics and mistaken practices as virtuous and as the path to awakening. Okay, so it's the view of rules and practices. For example, okay, holding extreme ascetic practices of self-mortification. So that's, you know, which many people did, even the Buddha did for six years before he became awakened. And people think that's the way to overcome the afflictions. Yeah, Uh, or fasting for weeks. Now, again, you know, people do that kind of thing. Or they sit in fire, thinking that that's virtuous. There was some guy in the state, somebody, Robbins, who had people walking through fires. Remember that? Hmm? Tony Robbins, yeah. And he was having people, yeah, I forget. Yeah, walk on fire, and it was to... Build courage or something like that. Okay. Um, but thinking that that's the path to enlightenment? Yeah. Or holding that perfectly performed Brahmanic rituals or the path. In other words, not transforming your mind, but performing the ritual perfectly. So that's those three are examples of uh, the wrong view of practices. You know, wrong view of rules is, for example, thinking that if you slaughter animals, it is virtuous and will bring good fortune to the community. Yeah, so you have these huge animal sacrifices once a year in Nepal. It's really dreadful. Yeah, and, you know, different cultures do animal sacrifices for that reason. Um, You know... What I was, I mentioned earlier, like thinking that killing uh, the, the people who don't believe in your religion is going to get you to heaven. That's a wrong ethical view. Yeah, thinking killing is virtuous. Okay, so that's the third one. Yeah, these three, when somebody attains... Um, uh, stream entry, these three are eliminated. Yeah. So that's interesting because, uh, like, view of a personality, of a, a personal identity for prasangikas, you know, it's eliminated much later, it's much deeper. Here, in the, how this path is set out, it's like, well, yeah, you you get rid of it very quickly because you've seen nirvana, so... Yeah, you no more have, you don't have doubt anymore. You don't have wrong views about rules and practices clinging because you've had a direct perception of nirvana. And same with the view of the personal identity. Okay, so those are the first three fetters. Those three are lower fetters. There's two more lower fetters. Okay. Number four is sensual desire. So that's attachment to objects in the desire realm. So we've come up with attachment, 
You know, it's an underlying tendency, it's a root affliction, it's one of the three poisonous attitudes. Everywhere you turn, you find attachment or some version of attachment. Sometimes it's called craving or clinging or greed. You know, it has goes by different names, but that's it. This is sensual desire, specifically for objects in the desire realm. So this is the kind of desire that most people, you know, human beings, animals, you know, have. Yeah. It's like Maitri really likes this certain kind of lysine drop. And, you know, if you put that in her bowl, she gobbles it up. If you put the other one in her bowl, she takes her time. Okay? So it kind of like us. Yeah? Depending <laughs> what we put in our bowl in the lunch line, we may gobble it up or we just kind of take a stroll through it and uh, <laughs> throw it out, at the, recycle it at the end. <laughs> okay, it's like, yeah. so... Okay, then the fifth fetter is malice. So that's the wish to harm another living being. So that one we see among the the ten paths of non-virtue. Okay. Yeah, and so here it's malice. In other situations, it may be called anger or hatred or spite or something else. It's It's on that side of it. Okay, so... In, in this system for the Shravakas and solitary realizers, when you become a once-returner, the difference between being a stream-enter and a once-returner is a once-returner has um, downgraded the degree of central desire. No, am I doing this right? Non-return. Yeah. Yeah, they've downgraded the degree of sensual desire and malice, okay, to the point that they will only take one more rebirth in the desire realm, okay? When they become a non-returner, then they've eliminated uh, desire, uh, sensual desire and malice altogether, because non, non-returners are usually born in the form realm, okay? And to be born in the form realm, you have to eliminate attachment to sensual desire. There's some, when I mentioned this morning, gated communities in the form realm, those are for some of the non-returners. Yeah, only non-returners get born there. Everybody else gets turned away. Yeah. Sorry, you got to give up your sensual desire and your malice, then we'll let you in. <laughs> okay, so those are the five lower fetters. Yeah, now the five upper fetters. So number six and seven go together. Their desire for existence in the form realm, that's six, and desire for existence in the formless realm, that's seven. Okay, so those are attached to their respective realms and the wish to continue to abide there. Okay, so you're born in the form realm. Yeah, or, you know, or maybe you're not born there yet. You're still a human being, but in your meditation, you've uh, 
gotten to the level of concentration where you have a form realm mind, yeah, and you wish to be born there and you wish to abide there because it's it's really nice. It's a lot better than the desire realm. Yeah, we go. It's better than the desire realm. Nothing is better than chocolate, you know. And this is why we keep getting born in the desire realm. Yeah, and this is how you. One of the ways you meditate to get born in the form realm is you meditate to see the defects of the desire realm and the good qualities of the form realm. Yeah, and then you get hooked on those. And then other uh, practitioners get a deeper level of concentration. Yeah, they they get reborn or they aspire for rebirth in the formless realm. And then that rebirth is, you know, you're you're just zoned out in your meditation. Yeah, the form realm beings meditate sometime, but they also, you know, come out of their meditation, they relate to each other and everything. Formless realm beings, you know, you are in deep state of meditation. Nothing disturbs you, so it's really nice and comfortable. Uh, You don't have to pay taxes. Nobody criticizes you. Um, You know, your dog doesn't run away and bite somebody else and sue you. You don't have any problems there, okay? You know? And and you're not depressed, you're not anxious, you know, you don't need to take Zoloft or, you know, lithium or something. So people get really attached to those realms, and they, they want to be born there. But the problem is you're still in samsara. So no matter how much, how comfortable some of the realms of samsara are, they're definitely, you know, they don't measure up to liberation. And the thing is, if we keep craving for rebirth in one of these realms, we wind up shooting ourselves in the foot because we may get reborn there, yeah, but the karma, the causal energy to be reborn there does not last forever. At some point, it runs out. And when that karma runs out, you, your rebirth in the form or formless realm runs out also. You know, and as Sirkum Rinpoche said, when they took him to the, to the top of the Eiffel Tower, those kind of rebirths are like the Eiffel Tower. When you get to the top, the only direction you can go in is down. And so they fall down to, into the desire realm again. And so uh, you may remember when we were talking about the four truths and especially uh, true cessation, how some of the wrong views associated with true cessation was thinking that rebirth in these realms uh, in samsara, confusing them with liberation and thinking, oh, it's so peaceful, I must have attained liberation. And then when the karma runs out and you fall down, then you really have despair and you freak out. And then you may even say, you know, if you got those confused, then you say, oh, the path didn't work. There's no such thing as liberation. 
And then, you know, you really have a whole set of wrong views to deal with. So that's why they say to, to really be careful with those kind of realms and check your meditation with, with meditation masters. Okay, so, um, yeah, so these are attached to their respective realms and wish to and wish to continue to abide there. These correspond to the pollutant of craving for continued existence, which we will talk about in the next section. Okay. Then the eighth um, of the ten fetters, so this one's also a higher fetter, is arrogance. So this isn't just any arrogance. This is the subtle, fundamental arrogance, the conceit of I am. Okay. So this differs from the view of the personal identity, which is a conceptual view holding a permanent true self, according to this school. Okay. After this view is eliminated, at the when someone becomes a stream enterer, the thoughts of I am this or I am that no longer arise. But the thought I am is still present. So that's why this kind of arrogance is a higher fetter that isn't eliminated until later on the path. Okay. So even though a non-returner, somebody, you know, right before our hardship, knows that this is uh, uh, this is is a mistaken notion, you know. I am, uh, and does and the non-returner does not hold on to the idea of I am. Still, the thought I am arises spontaneously in their mind. Yeah, that's how deeply ingrained it is. Okay. Then the ninth of the fetters, also a high fetter. Thank you. I'm curious about this term true self in the uh, fundamental vehicle descriptions here. That's used in the view of the personal identity, grasp mm -hmm. at a true self, and then again it's here. Um, differs from the personal identity, which is a conceptual view holding a permanent true self. Yeah. It, it's the idea of holding something that is the self. So it might be, uh, you know, the permanent partless independent self, or it might be the self-sufficient substantially existent self. Okay. If it were the permanent unitary independent self, it makes sense why this view of personal identity would be abandoned on the path of seeing, because it would be intellectually yeah. acquired. Yeah, but they also, you know, that's one of the big ones they they uh, uh, negate, but also a substantial self. But they don't refine the, ob there's the term object of negation, I think was developed in Tibet. I don't think they had that term before, because I haven't seen it in any other scriptures. You know, in commentaries on those, the Indian scriptures or the sutras, you find it, the term. Yeah. So, you know, in the, in the fundamental vehicle, I'm not, it doesn't seem to me that they define it with the 
incredible precision that somebody like Tsongkhapa does, you know, because Tsongkhapa is just, you know, it's not this, it's not that. It's like so delicately refined, whereas, uh, you know, when I asked Bhikkhu Bodhi about it, the, the, the description was much more general, okay? Okay, then number nine, restlessness. Yeah, so restlessness uh, is one of the, the five hindrances that we will come uh, to later. Okay, but here it says, restlessness is present in any mind that is not liberated. Yeah, when we talk about uh, restlessness as a problem, uh, you know, both Maitreya in his, uh, when he talks about the five faults of, um, that prevent uh, serenity, and in the Pali tradition, when they talk about the five hindrances, restlessness comes in both of those lists. Yeah. In Maitreya's thing, the, the, the Tibetans usually translate it as, it as, uh, excitement or agitation. But the term, the Sanskrit term, is the same that Pali people translate as restlessness. So I just used restlessness, of course, across the board whenever that term came up. Okay. So it's usually described as a hindrance to generating serenity, you know, a stage of concentration. Here it says that it is present in any mind that is not liberated. So here it's being defined a little bit more different. A little bit more different. Yeah, great English, isn't that? Yeah. <laughs> um, but you get, you understand what I'm saying. Okay. So this hindrance may still arise in non-returners if they are not mindful and diligent, but they are able to overcome it quickly. Okay, so it's still there. They notice it. They can whack it. Yeah, but they haven't eliminated it completely. Okay, and then the tenth, tenth fetter, this is the big one, our old friend, ignorance. Okay, so ignorance is the primordial ignorance that is the root of samsara. So there's different kinds of ignorance. Here, we're, it's speaking of the ignorance that's the root of samsara, the first link ignorance. It is blindness of the true nature, an obscuration that prevents us from seeing how things actually exist. Okay, so it's an obscuration. It's fog. It prevents the mind from seeing. But unlike the prasangika, according to the Pali tradition, Ignorance does not apprehend the opposite of how things exist. In the, you know, in the Sanskrit tradition, or, or I should say, not Sanskrit, the, in the Prasangikas, yeah, ignorance apprehends things to exist in the opposite way from how they actually exist. So it is the self-grasping of persons, the self-grasping of phenomena. Yeah, but here, you know, it's just obscuration, fog that prevents you from seeing. So slightly different, not slightly, this is actually a big difference. Huh? 
So the compendium of knowledge lists the fetters differently. Oh, we're just getting used to this list. Now we have another one. So Asanga didn't agree with his brother Vasubandhu. The treasury of knowledge has a different list? at the treasury of knowledge and there are what? eight fetters uh, non-shame non-embarrassment jealousy miserliness excitement regret sleep and lethargy okay we have to see if the term is the same it's the same it's ashvara but and or, and and there's also a list of or, or, called i'm the, sorry sam samyojana yeah well i don't know but there's also a list of five partial concordances with the bottom which is what you call the lower fetters here, mm -hmm. five partial concordances with the upper, which is the five uh, upper, upper fetters. Yeah. No, they're not called fetters, they're called something else. Yeah. So the fetters are something else. <laughs> okay. I'll send you, I'll send you this. Yeah, and we need to, to check the Sanskrit term too, to yeah. see if it's the same thing. Because that always happens that, you know, the, the terms are translated differently. Mm. But yeah, send, send it and... See, and I'll I'll check the Abhidharma that that I have too. Okay. So then the compendium of knowledge lists the fetters differently. Attachment, anger, arrogance, ignorance, deluded doubt. Those are found in this list we just went through. Afflictive views, and here afflictive views is not like afflictive views in the, in the root afflictions. Here, it is just the view of a personal identity, view of extremes and wrong views. And then another fetter is holding wrong views as supreme. And that one includes rule, uh, the view of rules and practices. And then jealousy and miserliness are listed as fetters. How many is that? One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine. I only get nine. Did I count them differently? Attachment, anger, arrogance, ignorance, deluded doubt, afflictive views, wrong view, holding wrong views as supreme, jealousy and miserliness. That list only has nine. Hmm. Okay, yeah? For this um, number 10, ignorance, mm -hmm. it says blindness of the true nature. Is that specific to the self, or is it yeah. all phenomena? Yeah, no, it's in, in the Pali, it's, it's specific to the self, yeah. Okay, then the reflection here, first uh, point. Choose one of the fetters that is obvious in your experience. Be aware uh, of it in its latent, manifest, and motivating forms. So what, which one would you choose to be obvious in your experience? Hmm? Restlessness. Okay, the mind going, huh? Okay, how about other people? Which one would you? 
is really prominent. Sensual desire. desire, Okay. Huh? Huh? Yeah, right. Malice when your sensual desires are not fulfilled. Yeah, you get mad at whoever interferes with them. So be aware of it, you know, in its latent form, that it's there. It's not manifest in your mind. So you sometimes may think, oh, I don't have that problem. But then notice it when it's manifest, and then notice it when it is strong enough that it motivates you to speak or to say, or, or say, or sorry, to speak or do something, or to ruminate about a thought over and over and over again. Okay? And then the second point, why eliminating its latent form requires insight into selflessness. What ideas do you have to inhibit it manifesting, or once it has manifested, for motivating your deeds and speech. Okay. So what are you going to do with your selflessness and your sensual desire and your malice? Okay, how are you going to inhibit them from arising? Besides getting everything you want. (laughs) But it still arises when you get everything you want. Huh? Yeah, think of the disadvantages. Yeah. What else? Yeah. Yeah, don't put yourself in the situation where that's going to trigger it. Yeah, what else? Be mindful where your mind goes, but then when your mind, you identify it, then what are you going to do with it? What's the antidote? Antidote. Oh, finally, somebody said impermanence. Good. That's, that's the big one to help us with sensual desire and restlessness. Thank you. I'm glad I'm sitting there going, don't people remember this? <laughs> so I'm glad you did. <laughs> yeah, you meditate on impermanence. And then that's a huge help. It's like, what am I clinging onto this for? Because it's already in the pot, you know, decaying. Yeah, whatever I'm sitting here craving is already going out of existence. Why in the world am I clinging to it? Okay. Sometimes I think we we don't meditate on impermanence enough. We forget that it's a really potent antidote. But, you know, when you really think about impermanence, it's like whatever I'm craving... I'm not going to have it for long, and it's in the process of disintegrating. Mm-hmm. Okay. So, now the next category, the pollutants. 
Sometimes this term is translated as um, contaminants. But I thought pollutants is better for our day and age than contaminants. Nowadays, people, you know, they think of pollution more than they think of contamination. Yeah. Okay, so the pollutants, ashrava, the, um, the fetters were samyojana. The pollutants are ashrava. So these perpetuate samsara. Most Pali sutras mention three pollutants, although a late addition to the Mahaparinirvana Sutta and the Pali Abhidhamma literature speak of four. That should be speaks of four, because it's the verb for a late addition. Okay. So uh, the first is the pollutant of sensuality. Here we go again, you know, is a deeply rooted tendency for sensual desire that causes us to get tangled up with sensual objects. It corresponds to the fetter of sensual desire, okay? So again and again, we keep encountering this thing you know, this is when we talk about the uh, the eight worldly concerns. This is four of them. Yeah, it's it's a root affliction. It's a a pollutant. It's a fetter. You know, everywhere you turn, sensual desire is. We're told that it's a problem and it inhibits us from attaining liberation. Now, if we look at our lives, it's true. Isn't it? Yeah. And then the second, the pollutant of existence. So this is a deep fundamental craving to exist in some form. So the pollutant is particularly insidious because it propels the mind to take rebirth repeatedly in cyclic existence. It encapsulates the fetters of desire for existence in the form and formless realms. Okay, so number six and seven of the fetters is number two of the pollutants. Yeah. So we see here, you know, the pollutant of sensuality keeps us taking rebirth in the, in the desire realm, but even we give up that, the pollutant of existence, wants rebirth in the form and formless realm. So we're still going on the merry-go-round of samsara. We aren't free yet. Okay. Then the third uh, pollutant is the pollutant of our old friend, ignorance. You see how the same things keep coming up? So this is a lack of knowing and understanding always present in samsaric beings, it sometimes surges and becomes very intense, inhibiting the mind from seeing reality clearly. This is one of the big things to be eliminated to perceive nirvana on the, uh, the fundamental vehicle path. The fetter of ignorance and the underlying tendency of ignorance are included in this pollutant. 
Then, so those are the three that uh, pollutants that are originally listed, and then the ones, uh, the late edition in the Pari, Mahaparinirvana Sutra, and the Pali Abhidharma is the fourth one, the pollutant of views. So this includes the fetters, uh, the fetters of view of a personal identity and view of rules and practices and the underlying tendency to views. Okay, so same things coming up again and again. This pollutant is not included in the enumeration of pollutants in the early suttas. Okay, so pollutants are deeply rooted primordial defilements that have kept us bound in samsara without respite. Existing deep in the mind, they flow into conscious experience when provoked by contact with certain objects. For example, contact with pleasant sensory objects stimulates the pollutant of sensuality. Yeah, contact with unpleasant sensuality stimulates the pollutant of uh, malice or of, um, no, that's, that's the fetter of malice, isn't it? Okay, but, um, uh, you know, the experience uh, in meditation of the former formless minds can stimulate that, uh, that pollutant. So Ashrava uh, was a word used by Brahmins and ascetics before the Buddhas. What's interesting when I was studying the Pali uh, tradition is to, you know, got pointed out that Buddha took many words that were found in general uh, society or, fa- or words that the, um, the ascetics at the time of the Buddha or the Jains at the time of the Buddha used. And the Buddha took those words and gave them a different meaning. Like the word moksha or liberation, you know, that all the different traditions talked about it. And, but Buddha gave it a specific meaning according to his teachings. Okay. The Buddha gave the term a new meaning and delineated the first three pollutants. These are also forms of craving, okay? Each focused on its own object and functioning in its own way to keep us trapped in samsara. Okay, so the pollutant of certainty, of sensuality, focuses on pleasant things, in the desire realm, the pollutant of existence focuses on uh, just the experience of being alive in the form or formless realms. Uh, the pollutant of ignorance uh, focuses, well, it doesn't focus. It just doesn't see reality clearly. It's just a fog. Okay. So the treasury of knowledge lists three pollutants. Okay. So this is a little bit different here. So the first one, the pollutant of desire or attachment, includes the afflictions and full entanglements of the desire realm, except for ignorance. And these are all non-virtuous. The pollutant of existence is directed inward and is interested in birth in the former formless realms. It is ethically neutral 
and includes the underlying tendencies and afflictions of the form and formless realms, except for ignorance. So desire in the form and, and formless realms are neutral. They are not non-virtuous, as in the, uh, the desire realm. The pollutant of ignorance is the ignorance of the desire, form, and formless realms. It is listed as a separate pollutant to emphasize that it is the root of samsara and that when it is eliminated, the other pollutants also cease. These are called pollutants because they establish us in cyclic existence. They are also sometimes called outflows because they flow out of the mind through the six sense sources. And the footnote there says, after speaking of the pollutants, Vasubandhu addresses the floods and the yokes, saying that they are four in number, attachment, existence, ignorance, and views. Interesting, you know, same as this list. They are called floods because they carry us away to rebirth in samsara. They are called yokes because they tie us to rebirth in samsara. He does not include views as a pollutant because the pollutants establish us in samsara, whereas views alone, without being associated with the other afflictions, are not sufficient to do this which is probably uh, why in the Pali tradition, uh, the pollutant of views is an extra one that came in later uh, scriptures, not the original ones. Okay. Okay, I think we're gonna stop here for tonight. <laughs> or I'm stopping here for tonight. <laughs> Yes. <laughs> uh -huh. uh, this is just the language I'm not understanding. Where it says the pollutant of ignorance is the ignorance of the desire form and formless realms. That means that it's the same ignorance that's in the mind of beings in those three realms? Or is it saying that's the yes. ignorance of that these three realms exist? No, it's no. the ignorance in the mind. It's found in all yeah. three realms. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Uh-huh. So when it says that these three pollutants are forms of craving, I don't quite understand how the pollutant of ignorance can be a form of craving. Yeah, that's a good question. Maybe it's just, you know, I, do, well, I don't know. I can't really answer that, you know. Uh, ignorance is just obscuration. Because yeah. they often, you know, when they talk about the root of samsara, it's ignorance. But in the Four Truths, when they give the example of the cause of samsara, it's craving. Yeah, so, I don't know, ask somebody who knows the answer, and then tell me. <laughs> yeah. It's from the beginning of the teaching. Okay. Oh, what about the monk who self-immolated in protest to Vietnamese government? Seems like bodhicitta, not delusion. Yeah, that, you know, the, so much of these, it, dep it depends on your motivation. The people in ancient India who walked on fire, the idea was that walking in fire 
uh, purified your afflictions. The Vietnamese monks who self-immolated were not thinking that this was a path to liberation. Yeah, they were doing it to catch the world's attention of what was going on and saying, you know, that the war, that war is, wreaks havoc on people and causes suffering. So, you know, motivation for uh, specific actions is really the important factor. Mm-hmm. Aren't form and formless realm beings creating, projecting karma to be born in those realms again when they are in meditation? So it seems they would have continuous rebirths in those realms. Um, I think maybe the form realm beings, if they have the wish to be reborn in the formless realm, they would create that karma. Formless realm beings, do they can, you know, I don't think they were, they think too much about creating karma. They're just focused on their, their delight in meditation. SK, you have anything about, about this? Hmm? Hmm? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, because they usually talk about it as something you do aspiring to be born there. Yeah. See if you can find out. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Beings in the form realm are gods. What are beings in the formless realm? They're called gods, too. Yeah, there's many different kinds of gods. There's six kinds of desire realm gods. There's many different kinds of form realm gods. There's four kinds of formless realm gods. Yeah. Any other? That's it? Yeah. The comment that the floods and yokes sound like the four powerful rivers in the um, three principle. Yeah. They're the same. Yeah. 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 So, yeah, so you see these things coming in many different contexts. Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. So four rivers, four floods, yeah, is probably the same term. Um, what's the difference between afflictions, pollutants, and fetters? Is it just that they're coming from different sources? Is there a reason to think about them No, I think they talk about them more when they're talking about how how samsara comes about. You know, there might be slight differences in how they're defined, you know, but there's so many similarities. But it, it seems like, like just when we went through, why are they called floods? Why are they called yokes? You know, it's the same ones, but it's they're called this because you're looking at them this way, or they're called this because you're looking at them that way. Okay. Mm-hmm. Um, why is the pollutant of existence considered ethically neutral, considering where it gets oh, you? Because uh, the afflictions in the in the form and formless realms are said to be neutral. I think all of them are neutral, right, SK? Are there any that are negative? Okay, she's checking. Hmm? Yeah. 
So it's, you know, it's really emphasizing that the desire realm is where you create so much negativity. Yeah. Yeah. It seems strange to think of, you know, attachment in the form realm as ethically neutral. Isn't attachment attachment? It's clinging to something. Well, yes, it is. It's clinging to something. It prevents liberation. But it's not, you know... Right. Non-virtue is uh, usually the cause of rebirth in the lower realms. So like killing and stealing and so on in the desire realm causes rebirth in the lower realms. But the attachment in the upper realms is much more subtle. They're just attached to their meditative bliss. They're not attached to yeah. gross objects. and They don't commit the ten non-virtues. Yeah. So when they were talking about things like attachment in the former's realms, in any realm, can those be considered non-virtuous if you don't act on them? So having ignorance in the mind or attachment, is that in and of itself non-virtuous or you have to act on them and do something ah, non-virtuous okay. in order for them to... Yeah. Ignorance karma? itself is usually not, not... There's different kinds of ignorance. Some are non-virtuous. This ignorance that is just the obscuration not seeing reality or the ignorance that grass uh, at itself, those ones are ethically neutral. Yeah. And then, say your question again. The so kind of in any realm, would these things like attachment be considered, um, oh, I guess, ethically neutral if you don't act on, on them? It. Yeah, okay. Um, in the desire realm, if you, you know, when we look at the 10 non-virtues, uh, or the ten pathways of uh, ten non-virtuous pathways of karma. One of them is is coveting. So that's just a mental non-virtue. It's the mental factor of attachment. But it's when your attachment is going round and around, thinking of how you can get something you want. So you're not acting on it with your body or speech, but your mind is sunk into it. Exactly. Yep. Yeah. So you can you can sit there creating non-virtue even though you're sitting in meditative posture, you know, depending on what's going on in our mind. <laughs> okay, shall we dedicate?